So the reading this morning is Acts chapter 18, verse 23, to Acts chapter 19, verse 20, and can be found on page 1115 in the Red Bibles. And we have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. So that's starting at Acts chapter 18, verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but hot weather like this always makes me think of the seaside. It makes me think of sandcastles and ice cream and paddling in the sea. And in our family, we particularly like to go to the beach, or I particularly like to go to the beach, when the tide is coming in. So we can build a big sandcastle and see how long it lasts. And we should have a, here's one that we made earlier, last time we went to the beach. It took us about three years. Um, 
But of course, eventually, with every sandcastle you make, well, maybe not that one, but with every sandcastle you make, eventually when the tide is coming in, the tide is going to wash it away. And the rising tide is an illustration of what's happening to the gospel in Acts. Because on the one hand, over time, we see that the gospel is advancing, just like that tide is advancing up the beach. But at the same time, just like at the beach, there's an ebb and flow, isn't there? As the waves lap in and out, in and out. Paul spreads the message in a city, then he faces opposition and moves on, in and out. But over time, the little church planted in that city grows. Paul moves to another city and plants another church there. And so over time, just like the rising tide, the gospel moves and grows. In and out, but always advancing. But amidst that ebb and flow of the waves coming in and out, sometimes you get a big wave that rushes in, don't you? You know when you go to the beach and you kind of chase the waves, sometimes one comes in with extra force. And when the tide's coming in, you you know, it feels like it never really gets back to the point it was before. It's always moving in. And today's passage is like one of their moments, those moments. We're told that in Paul's two years in Ephesus, the entire province of Asia hears the gospel. That whole red section from one city in two years hears the gospel. A huge step is taken. The big wave comes in, and the place will never be the same again. Our last verse, 1920, sums it up well. It says, In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The gospel advances. And our passage today shows us that gospel advance in two major ways. Firstly, we see how it spreads through converts. And then we see how it spreads through events in the city of Ephesus itself. Converts and events. Firstly then, converts. And we get two examples, two groups of converts drawn into Paul's missionary orbit, if you like, in this section. Apollos is one, and then a group of unnamed disciples is the other. But let's start with Apollos. Well, who is Apollos? We came across him when we looked at 1 Corinthians, however many months ago it was. Do you remember? Talking about the Corinthian church, Paul says in writing to them, I planted the seed. We saw that last week. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And here in Acts, we find out a little bit more about who that mysterious Apollos is and why he ends up at the Corinthian church. Last week, we saw Paul told us how Paul planted that church. And this week, we see Apollos sent off to do the watering. Well, Acts tells us Apollos is from Alexandria in Egypt, a city there. When he arrives in Ephesus, he's already heard the gospel, possibly in Alexandria. Some unknown disciple has taken it there. But he hasn't just heard the gospel. He's already speaking the message of that gospel in Ephesus. That's where we meet him in our passage, in the synagogue there. It's here that Paul's colleagues, Priscilla and Aquila, find him. I don't know if you remember them from last week, but they've just spent 18 months in Corinth with Paul. 
And so they have the latest up-to-date information, and they're able to pass that on to Apollos when they meet. They meet together with him, and they pass on some of that knowledge that Paul has given to them. Presumably, we hear, as Pete mentioned before, that, that Apollos has only heard about the baptism of John. So there's something key missing there. Even though he's keen to preach that gospel message, there's something missing. And so Priscilla, Aquila, pass it on. Yet it is also clear that here is a man, Apollos, who has a passion for teaching the gospel for defending the gospel, for telling people the gospel message. And so he wants to carry on spreading the message. He's arrived in Ephesus, presumably to do that, and now he wants to go on to Corinth in Achaia. And we see, we know um, from Corinthians, he becomes a great help to the church there. And so we see here indirectly how Paul's teaching of Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth has empowered Apollos for his own gospel teaching in that same city, through this city of Ephesus. The gospel is advancing even before Paul has arrived. But then, in chapter 19, Paul finally gets to do what he was originally intending to do way back when we started our series in chapter 16. He finally gets to go to Ephesus via the overland route. What a treat. And almost immediately when he arrives in Ephesus, he meets a number of disciples. These disciples, it turns out, well, they haven't even heard of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they too, like Apollos, have only heard of John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. And so this information often raises a question. There's lots of things Luke doesn't tell us that it would be really handy to know. And so this often raises a question. Why is it that these disciples are baptized by Paul when Apollos wasn't baptized? When it seemed like Apollos didn't need to be baptized? What's the difference between these two, as it were, groups of converts between Apollos on the one hand and uh, these disciples on the other hand? Because they're both said to only know John's baptism. And it's a good question, and our passage actually doesn't give us a definite answer. But there does seem to be a clue when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Because these disciples, it's clear, don't already have the Holy Spirit living in them, in their hearts. Whereas Apollos, when he's preaching in the synagogue, the Greek says he's preached with great fervor in the Spirit. And so the truth is that Apollos, even if he didn't quite know all the ins and outs of it, clearly was already a Christian. He already had the Holy Spirit with him because that's the fervor he was preaching in. Whereas these disciples, they're a step further back. They're keen to follow. They're keen to repent. But they don't know where to place their faith. They've heard John's message but not the message of the church going out in the Holy Spirit, inspired by the power of the resurrected Jesus. And so, when Paul baptizes them in Jesus' name, he's really baptizing them properly for the first time. It's a bit like they've kind of been trapped somewhere between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And finally now, in this baptism, they're brought forward to Pentecost. And so that's why we see they have their own little Pentecost, speaking in tongues and prophesying at the end of chapter 18. And so again, ultimately, what we see here is that as, um, sorry, not the end of chapter 18, in the beginning of chapter 19. And so again here, we see as soon as Paul arrives in the city, the gospel advances. And you know, there are lots of academic questions that come out of this section. You can read the commentaries, they'll tell you their view. But it, at its heart, the, the, central, the central truth that these disciples have is a deep desire to repent and to turn to Jesus. So thanks to the teaching that they've received in the past, the message of John, these disciples know in their hearts that they're sinners, which means that they know that they've, they've messed up by rejecting God and going their own way, and that they know that because of that, they needed God's forgiveness. And so they wanted to turn back to God. They wanted to say sorry and to follow him. And the truth is they could only really do that in Jesus. When they found out, when Paul told them that Jesus died on the cross for them, that if they trusted in him, his death would take the punishment they deserved for their sins. And when they realized that if they trusted in Jesus, then they could even have God himself the Holy Spirit come and be with them? Well, they jumped at the chance. And when we realize that same thing, when we realize that this same is true for us, that we too have rejected God and rebelled against him, and we too can have forgiveness in Jesus, in his death for us, in what he has done for us, so that we too can have the Holy Spirit living in us, God himself with us. Why wouldn't we too jump at the chance and that's what happens here and it can happen for us so paul gets off to a good start in ephesus he's only just arrived and already someone's gone to corinth already disciples have believed and it only gets better from there in the rest of our passage today we see how powerful and transformational the gospel is as it advances through the city and out into the province. In verses 8 to 10, we see that Paul's strategy mirrors his time in Corinth. First, he goes to the synagogue where he stays for three months before once again he faces hostility and he moves to a secular space. This time, a lecture hall, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, in Ephesus. We don't know whether Tyrannus was a lecturer or the owner, or both. Either way, this is where Paul pitches up for two years and preaches the gospel. And in that time, the gospel goes across the whole province of Asia. Now, early church tradition tells us that Paul would preach in the lecture hall during the long midday break at the hottest part of the day, what we get to experience now. At this time, the hall would be free because people were resting. People would work in the morning and work in the later afternoon, and in the middle of the day, they would shelter from the heat of the sun. Because as Noel Coward said, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. And please do stay for our picnic afterwards, where we get to experience that ourselves. But this setup 
gave Paul a perfect chance to appeal to folk between those working hours. They were at their rest. This was their leisure time. And so people from all over the city came to hear Paul under shelter in the middle of the day. Over those two years that Paul was preaching there, the transformative power of the gospel was shown in extraordinary ways. And Luke documents just three of what, what is clearly meant to be a myriad of examples of that for us. We see them in verses 11 and 12, verses 13 to 16, and verses 17 to 19. And because I have zero imagination, I'm calling these sections handkerchief healings, exorcist overpowering, and sorcery succumbing. And I'm sorry, I just couldn't think of anything better. But firstly, in verses 11 and 12, Luke uses this example of these handkerchief healings. And it's clear that this is just one of many examples. And these handkerchiefs would probably have been the sweat bands, the sweat cloths that Paul would have used while he was tent making in the morning and in the afternoon and evening. And Luke tells us that even these, these sweat cloths, these handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul was using, that Paul touched, gained power, gospel power. From these miracles, it's clear, um, Luke is showing us that the gospel was as powerfully at work in Ephesus, can be as powerfully at work in the world as it was with Jesus. Think of Jesus and the woman who just touches the hem of his robe and she is healed. That power, that mighty power is at work through the Holy Spirit here in Ephesus. It's the same God, the same power, and as it goes out through the city, people are amazed. In fact, this remarkable transformative power clearly made an impression not just on those who became Christians, but more widely on the whole city, because even people who didn't believe tried to use this power. And this brings us to verses 13 to 16, where we see exactly that happen as exorcists are overpowered. And it's helpful to get a bit of uh, background about Ephesus here to understand what's going on. You see, Ephesus was a city particularly full of belief in sorcery and magic. It was quite common throughout the ancient world, but particularly in Ephesus, where there was a strong belief that certain words were, were magical. And then if you combined these words together in long strings of words into sentences, then they had powerful abilities to protect you from curses and things like that. They were like talismans, like one of those horseshoes, whether upside down or the right way around. I can never remember that you put on your door, apparently, and you know it's supposed to keep the look in or whatever that is. Well, Ephesus had what they call Ephesian scrolls, little scrolls with these magic words written on them. And some Jewish words in particular were considered to have special power. And so the, this so-called high priest, Sceva and his sons, had clearly been taking advantage of that fact, making a living, promising to exercise demons from people using these special Jewish words. The name Yahweh, God in, in, in Hebrew, was considered to be an extra special, powerful word. So if this guy could say he was a high priest, well, surely he could charge more and it was happy days for him. And now that the gospel has entered Ephesus, they've heard the name Jesus. And they've seen how Paul and the disciples have, have, um, have healed people and have exercised demons in the name of Jesus. 
And they think, hang on, we're on to a good thing. We will start writing down and using the name Jesus as we go about exercising these demons. That's great. Add another word to the list. But of course, the gospel doesn't work like that. The gospel isn't a magic word like abracadabra. The gospel is, is just the opposite of that. And so we see in our passage that Sceva's sons are humiliated. And the end result of this episode is that, is that people actually gain even more respect for the gospel because they realize that this isn't some sort of cheap magic that can be toyed with, but that it's something far more powerful. It's far more raw. This is God's power. It can't be controlled to your own advantage. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fit within their realm of magic and sorcery. In fact, it defies their magic and sorcery. It defeats their magic and sorcery. This is the true godly power. And in fact, the beating that Sceva's sons receive, this absolute thumping, causes a remarkable scene in verses 17 to 19, where we see sorcery throughout the city succumbing to the advance and the power of the gospel. It seems that there were many Christians in Ephesus who, who had become Christians but, but hadn't been able to give up this old part of their way of life. And so when Sceva's sons receive this battering, their consciences are, are, are pricked. They realize that they can't continue to follow these magic scrolls, that way of life, and follow Jesus. That these two things are opposite ends of the scale. And so they bring out their scrolls, 50,000 drachma of them, 50,000 days' wages, 100 and however many years' work, and they burn them. This incredible scene wasn't organized. It was just Christians spontaneously coming together, convicted to renounce their old way of life, to keep turning away from sin and turning to their Savior, to be made more into the likeness of Jesus. That is, is one example of the remarkable way that the gospel reaches out into a city as it transforms people heart by heart by heart, going from individual to individual to individual, changing them more into the likeness of Jesus. Over time, it transforms a city more into the likeness of Jesus. And this whole passage should be encouraging for us. If you're a Christian here today, then sister, brother, be encouraged. The gospel is powerful. When it advances, it does good. It changes evil into good. But just a question for you as well. To take away as you go out to the rest of this day, we've seen in our passage how the gospel overcomes magic. But what other ways does the gospel challenge our society here in Manchester today? What ways would this city change? Ephesus was... Um, enamored with magic what way would our city change what is our city enamored with that isn't how jesus would want us to be think of imagine our church as that lecture hall the lecture hall of tyrannus imagine the gospel going out from here from all of us out across the whole city from here to bury and beyond in what ways does it challenge you what are the things that you're holding on to that that you need to give up when these Christians saw what happened to the sons of Sceva, they realized that they couldn't carry on living in that way and continue to be followers of Jesus. They knew magic wasn't compatible with their faith, with following Jesus. And, and you know in your heart, 
What is the Holy Spirit placing on your heart that you need to give up as you seek to follow him? As people become Christian, and as Christians become more like Jesus, the gospel advances. We see that in Ephesus. The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power, it says. The transformative power of the gospel spreads out and like that incoming tide, cannot be stopped. Though the pattern we've seen in Acts of the waves coming in and out continues, the truth of the gospel meets opposition and the opposition pushes back, but ultimately that work will never be undone. The tide in Ephesus is definitely coming in. Things in Asia will never be the same again. Things in Manchester, things in the world, never the same again. The gospel advances in power and it cannot be stopped.